Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Maybe this is typical of all young musicians, but I remember being thoroughly unenthusiastic about scales, etudes, and other technical exercises during my childhood years. On some level, I think I understood that they were good for me in the way that I could accept that my Flintstones vitamins were good for me, but in much the same way that I used to hide Fred, Dino, and Pebbles under my plate, clearly not the most sophisticated hiding place, by the way, I did the bare minimum with my assigned technical exercises too. But in hindsight, there are a few exercises that I wish I would have taken a little more seriously. One of these is a book on shifting, that I think might have been one of the very first technique books that my teacher, Maria Gizzi, shared with me. The Exercises for Change of Position book by violinist Gaylord Yost. At the time, it seemed like a pretty silly set of exercises. I mean, it's just like 16 pages of shifts between various positions with different fingers on different strings. But looking at it now, I can appreciate the value of what Yost laid out. Because there are so many important nuances and details involved in getting from one part of the instrument to another that are worth practicing, whether on the violin, guitar, piano, or presumably other instruments too. Because aside from the shifting movement itself, which has to happen smoothly and often very quickly, there are certain muscles that need to move even in advance of the shift, all of which takes quite a bit of anticipation, coordination, and timing to perform successfully. So that's why I was intrigued when I came across a study recently that looks specifically at mental practices' effects on movement timing, and not just whether the correct notes were played or not, which apparently hadn't been studied before. So what does this all mean? Like, why should we care? Well, maybe it's just me, but there's something about seeing someone shift and get from one part of the instrument to another with smoothness and effortlessness that's pretty awesome. Kind of like watching a tennis player with an effortless one-handed backhand or a basketball player with a beautifully smooth shooting stroke. So if these key nuances and details of shifting, leaps, and getting from one note to another some distance away can be improved through mental practice away from the instrument, I thought that might be worth exploring. A team of Italian researchers recruited 16 pianists from local conservatories, all of whom were currently performing at a professional level. 
Everyone first participated in two one-hour mental practice training sessions, which included various concentration, mindfulness, and imagery-focused exercises. They were also walked step-by-step through the process of using mental practice to learn the first four measures of the finale from Beethoven's C minor, Opus 1, Number 3, Piano Trio. Essentially, this involved focusing on first visualizing which keys to press, and then gradually incorporating imagery of what their body needed to do to play the phrase. With instructions like, visualize as precisely as possible the keys on the keyboard corresponding to the written notes. And, visualize the position of the hand, the width of the movement of the arm. Then, participants were asked to add the feel and sound of the passage into their imagery, starting slowly, breaking the phrase down into smaller pieces, but gradually increasing the tempo, with instructions like, feel each single interval in terms of both movement and sound, starting at a slow tempo, and feel inside your body how the fingers should press the keys, initially using a legato touch. Next, participants were encouraged to try playing the passage physically, for real, and switching back and forth between physical and mental repetitions, to refine their mental images. Then they began adding dynamics to the equation, fortissimo in this case, which affected articulation and touch. And finally, they were asked to imagine performing the whole passage in its entirety as a complete series of connected movements. They were asked to practice this process daily, with whatever repertoire they were working on for the next couple weeks. The second training session was much like the first, except they practiced using imagery to work on a different piece, And after two more weeks of daily mental practice, it was time to put all of this to the test. When test day arrived, participants were presented with an arpeggio excerpt from Brahms' 51 Exercises for Piano, specifically the first bar of Exercise 5A. This excerpt was chosen because the distance between notes and the fast tempo makes it a little challenging to hit the right keys, though without being so hard that it's not sort of sight-readable still. Everyone started off with a baseline performance, where they played the figure through just one time with a metronome. Then, the mental practice group was given seven minutes to practice the piece mentally, without moving their hands or fingers in any way. After which, they played the passage through again, followed by another seven minutes of mental practice, and then one last run-through of the passage. The physical practice group went through the same basic process, except that instead of mental practice, they were given seven minutes to do any kind of practice they wanted, as long as it involved physically playing on the piano. In other words, they weren't forbidden from doing mental practice, because previous studies have found that it's kind of difficult to prevent people from doing any mental practice, but there did need to be at least some physical playing of the instrument involved. And then there was a third control group of participants who were not allowed to do any kind of practicing at all and kept busy with questionnaires during the seven minutes between performances instead. So, were there any learning or performance differences between the groups? Well, the researchers looked at two key aspects of accuracy. Spatial accuracy, which is the number of wrong notes, but also timing accuracy, which would be the hesitations in their movements. They also used video to do a movement analysis of the pianist's fingers, hands, and wrist movements. Like, how well-coordinated were the movements of the wrist and fingers? Did the fingers begin to open even as the wrist was moving, in anticipation of what would need to happen slightly in the future? Or did the movements of each part of the hand happen one at a time, one after another, in a more basic, less sophisticated sort of way? And what about hand and finger speed? 
What was the fastest speed attained, and how long did it take to get to this peak velocity? In terms of misnotes, that is spatial accuracy, both practice groups improved from their first performance to their last relative to the no practice group. Although, as you'd expect, the physical practice group improved a bit more than the mental practice group did, missing fewer notes in both of their performance recordings. When it came to timing accuracy, however, both practice groups improved more or less equally, where both mental and physical practice not only seemed to contribute to an increase in peak velocity, but reduced the time it took to get to peak velocity too. Meaning what exactly? Well, in other words, not only did their hands move more quickly from one part of the arpeggio to another, but there was greater anticipation of the movement too, where participants in the two practice groups started to execute the movement earlier with less hesitation than they did in their baseline recording. Which I suspect is similar to how a violinist might front load some of the movements required for big shift, like loosening up the thumb, getting the hand shape into position, and starting to get the elbow around, well before they need to start the main shifting motion itself, so that there's less to do during the shift, making for a smoother, more efficient, and less frantic sort of motion, not to mention more accurate. So what are the main takeaways? Well, for one, it's nice to see yet more evidence showing how mental practice, while definitely not a replacement for physical practice, can nevertheless lead to some very specific concrete improvements in our technique. And the idea that we might be able to improve the anticipation and coordination of tricky shifts in our head without having to put our hands and bodies through the wear and tear of excessive repetitions seems pretty appealing perhaps even by alternating mental and physical reps in the practice room, similarly to how participants in this study were taught to do, instead of just doing it all in our heads away from the instrument. The authors of the study had one more tip to offer, given some additional nuanced findings that there wasn't quite enough time to cover today. But consistent with findings in previous research, they found that the mental practicers who played fewer wrong notes were also the ones who reported doing more listening of expert recordings on a regular basis who presumably then had clearer auditory models to work off of in their imagery sessions. So there does seem to be some additional evidence here that listening to recordings and cultivating one's inner ear might help to make your mental practice sessions a little more effective, too. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week.